Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to talk to my illustrious predecessor, Peter Hall, who genuinely needs no introduction. But I would like to say, on my behalf and on behalf of all the directors, not just of this theatre, but of most subsidised theatre, uh, most, most subsidised theatre who, um, who have worked in their theatres since Peter was first, the first director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, which he founded, and then uh, the director of the National Theatre who brought the company from the Old Vic to this building, that uh, we're all extremely aware that our jobs are extremely easy in comparison to the jobs that he did, and that all the battles that he fought, and that all the blood that spilt on the carpet uh, as a result of the victories he had to win have made life incredibly easy for us, and we have a lovely time uh, <laughs> because of what he did when he was here and when he founded the RSC. So I personally am enormously grateful to Peter, not just for his... Um, not, not, not just for the, uh, the brilliance of his career and the brilliance of his productions. Uh, on to Twelfth Night. Uh, was very obvious that we at the National Theatre had to mark Peter's 80th birthday and that it would be a wonderful thing if, to mark his 80th birthday, he was able to come back and do us a production. And I remember uh, Nick Starr and I taking Peter for lunch at Shiki's and asking him what he wanted to do. And so the first question, Peter, is why did you want to do Twelfth Night and why did you want to do it in the Cottesloe? Well, you could do it in the Cottesloe because I think you couldn't do any play in the Cottesloe. And my memory of 15 years here was that I never got down until the very, very end to do any plays here because they wanted me upstairs in the Olivier doing the captain's innings. Which yeah, same here. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's an extraordinary space for intimate, detailed, delicate work. Um, and I had not been here since oh, the mid-century. The mid century. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Mid-80s. Mid-80s, yeah. yeah. Why Twelfth Night? Well, Twelfth Night's one of my ten favourite plays. Um, this was the fourth time I was having a go at it. That I didn't tell you when we were talking. <laughs> I've done it three times already, and it's still not right. <laughs> anyway, this looked as if it could have a real chance in this space, intimate, concentrated. Um, the play, I think, is one of Shakespeare's most considered and extraordinary, because it's absolutely full of contradictions, absolutely full of them. Men are women, women are men, and then go on from there. Um, and why did I want to do it? Well, you first did it, I'm really going to spill yeah. the beans now, in 1954. Did um, I really? Yeah. <laughs> well, with what? the Elizabethan Theatre Company, was it? I think so. I think, were you in Oxford, was it? Well, it was Oxford, it was in Oxford, but we pretended it was in Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> How, what, what's, happened, what's happened to the play since then? What's happened to your relationship with the play? Can, can you remember... And, and also the famous uh, Stratford production with uh, Dorothy Tootin as Viola was... Uh, was Julian McEwan. As, was as Olivia. As Olivia, yeah. yeah. How, is, how, how is this one different from...? 
Both no, ones. I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah. All, all, I, all I know is with, with revivals, horrid word, means get them back to life when they're dead, revive. Anyway, all I know is that if it's a, a revival and you spend most of your time thinking, what did I do there? Why didn't that work? Why can't I get it right again? Um, it's totally against any kind of creativity. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm always very aware of people saying, what are you changing or what are you doing mm. that's different? Or, and the answer is, I don't know. But you must have changed as a director. Oh, I'm sure I have. Yeah. I, I hope I'm a, I'm a little more disciplined. Yeah. I hope it's all more precise. Did you think of yourself as an iconoclast in those days? Were you... Were, when? Were, in, in, in the late 50s, early 60s? Well, I wasn't really supposed to have this job at Stratford, you see. I remember there was quite a lot of adverse comment in the, in the press. They said, this chap does um, Waiting for Godot, crapulous play. Um, this, this chap does modern plays in the West End. And now he's going to do Shakespeare at Stratford. He won't you know, know anything about it. And there was a press campaign in some quarters saying, this boy's too young and too, inexp too inexpressive. Um, so that was the start of it. I wasn't running Stratford then, but I was the visitor. The first time, the first play I did at Stratford was Love's Labour's Lost. Then the next year I did Cymbeline with Peggy Ashcroft. And the next year, it, it must have been the Twelfth Night movement. Yeah. At what point did was the Royal Shakespeare Company itself founded in that? Because you did. Nineteen sixty. Yeah, but you you you. I'd done been, a lot. Yeah, I'd at done, Stratford. Yeah. Yes, I'd done Coriolanus with Olivier and yeah. Edith Evans. Um, Twelfth Night. With as you said, with Dorothy Tutin, yeah. which was carried out forward. I mean, it started in '58, I think, yeah. and was still playing in '62 with yeah. another another cast. I think what I'm driving at is uh, uh, my my impression is that when you formed the RSC, when you insisted on. Um, the particular approach to Shakespeare that the RSC took in its early days, uh, you were perceived to be sweeping away the cobwebs. And now when you talk about Shakespeare, there is a regret for something that you feel uh, we're beginning to lose. So yes. it, that, that journey from radical to, as it were, um, preserver of the great tradition, how, is, how, how has that come about? I suppose it happens to everybody. I mean, I, I regarded myself as a fairly square operator. Mm. But um, certainly, you know, when then started meeting young people from the fringe theatre of the day who thought it was simple rubbish that was going on in, the, in Stratford. Much too square. Um, I mean, all I know about what you do in the theatre is that you better have gut reaction and real desperate need to do it. Um, that sounds easy. It's not easy. Of course, it isn't easy. But it's a, it's a wonderful therapy 
you said to me, why am, I, why, did I, why am I a director? Why did I want to be a director? I would say because when you have a good company of actors and a good play and a reasonable amount of rehearsal time, there will be a, a union so that a company is created who support each other, even if they dislike each other. And out of that can come extraordinary days of work where everybody is much better than they know they are secretly. Mm. That's what I like. The, the day you go home saying, it really happened today. Mm. And what, how does it happen? Why does it happen? Well, it's just exchange. And it's, of course, the writer. I don't know how, I mean, we will not know what they'll think in 100 years' time. But there was a golden age, it still is, of writing playwrights. And that's what was exciting about the RSC. Mm. It was based on Shakespeare, but it was you know, wanting Beckett, wanting Pinto, wanting Aikborn, wanting... Mm. What, what was it like, just travelling back a little before the RSC, what was it like opening Waiting for Godot for the first time? What did you think? I thought I was mad. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's facetious. It's not really true. Um, the script was given to me. I was running the art theatre in Great Newport Street. I was 25. Um, and I had the, to provide a play every month for five weeks. Uh, of very little uh, budget, very small budget. What was it like, though? This, this script came, and I read it, and I thought... I didn't say to myself, ah, oh, this is the play of the century. <laughs> this will change people's conception of what theatre really is. Of course not. I thought, if we're lucky, it'll, it'll get us through August. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe we can revive it again in September, if it's worth. <laughs> so we set about doing it. Um, the actors were wonderful because they had not the least idea what was going on. <laughs> there was a wonderful, very rotund actor called Peter Bull, who some of you may remember, uh, who played Pozzo. He was really very hostile to the whole proceedings, <laughs> but he thought he could help a few friends. So he came along. If I tell you that the absolute peak of his performance was it transferred the play from the arts to the Criterion, where it ran for months. Except there was one unfortunate evening when he came on in the second act, deaf and blind, and the lady sitting just there said, I do wish the fat one would go away. <laughs> <laughs> and she said it very loudly, <laughs> indeed. He spent the rest of his life thinking of possible riposte. <laughs> but he hadn't actually got one at the time, so it didn't, didn't really count. Anyway, no, Godot was a, a, a miracle, a miracle. It changed my life absolutely completely. It took me to Stratford, it took me into the West End, it took me to Broadway. It was extraordinary. Um, and then Pinter. And then Pinter. And then Beckett and Pinter, both. And how did you, how did you know that 
the, because the pinter must have seemed so strange on the uh, on the on the desk. How it did you was. Know? It was. It came with a letter which said, "Dear Mr. Hall, I saw your play Waiting for Godot last night. I wonder if you'd like to look at my latest play, yours, Harold Pinter." <laughs> I didn't know who Harold Pinter was. I mean, he was a, a jobbing actor oh. on the road most of the time in those days. Yeah. Um, I mean, what he did to all of us was blow the whistle on excess. Um, he believed that less is more in the theatre, and if you can get rid of it, you should not do it. And I think that's, in terms of design, staging, lighting, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, and there's a lot of truth in actually analysing a Shakespeare speech and saying less is more. And do you think, bringing us neatly back to Shakespeare, that you now do less, or you wished it to appear that you have done less with Shakespeare? You mean I've done less with this particular speech or whatever? No, I've d Just d generally. Is, it, is, it, is, it, is it your objective to pare away and, yes. get, and get down to the simple essence? I mean, you've, you've seen, we've all seen, the kind of Shakespeare productions um, which are, you know, surrounded with stuff. Yes. You know, men with earpieces, that kind of thing. But it's, uh, um, uh, but it's, uh, but do you want to? D d is it your objective to get down well, to the? Well, real it's kernel? if if you or I had to provide three or four plays every three weeks, which uh, obviously Shakespeare had to. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody writes thirty-seven plays in a very short period of time, unless they've got an urge which is about creativity rather than about money. I mean, money is nice. But, um, and Shakespeare became an extremely rich man. But that didn't seem as if it was the obvious need in him. His need was to write plays. Um, and it would have been, I mean, what, what, what would any of us give to have an hour's talk with him? It would be extraordinary. I'm interested in the idea that um, as you do the job that we do more, you become less and less interested in your, well, your, in your own interpretative spin. And yeah, you just that, want that, to I get to the true. centre. You want to go to the centre of the yeah, play, not yeah. to the centre of Peter Hall. That's yeah. different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, movie directors can do that yeah. if they're lucky. Yeah. But I don't think we can in the theatre. No, I, no, I, I mean, the play is the, the thing. Yeah. That's what we're there for. And if there isn't that kind of real creative uh, union with the, the playwright, it's never going to work anyway. Yeah. Um, but you know, looking back to the, those early years at Stratford, there were three different kinds of actors. There was the old kind of actor who pretended he'd been with Irving, but he was frightfully <laughs> loud and... Uh, yeah. That was the, the earliest rank. Then the middle rank of the company was the middle-aged, rather the sexy people who were hoping for a contract with J. Arthur Rank. I mean, <laughs> nothing much has changed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they had, they, they'd been brought up and conditioned by... Uh, J.B. Priestley, Somerset Maugham, Terence Rattigan. And they 
they spoke Shakespeare with right point at the, at the back of the morning, you know. No real projection going forward. It's hammy. And then, hammy, I said. And hammy it was. And then the third type of actor we had was, was led by the Albert Finney Brigade, who said, we want to be We want to speak as we speak in life. And I thought, God almighty. <laughs> so you've got to make a, a company out of those three segments. <laughs> And they didn't like each other. <laughs> and I, 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 it took three years, actually, to, to get there in any sort of shape or form. But what was fascinating was that they could do anything. Though I remember a great actor who I worked with a lot, Paul Rogers, saying to me, The Homecoming, all right, it's called The Homecoming, but what's all this about pause? <laughs> pause. Pause. And I said, the author says it's silent then. And we have to find out what it is. What, what could possibly happen during that silence? And he'd say, I just want to do it when I feel it. And I said, you're not the writer anymore. You're the leading actor, and you do what the writer says. Pause. <laughs> that stuck, though it was rather spoiled and my dear friend Harold Pinter, a couple of years ago, I think in some public demonstration rather like this, said that he was fed up with pauses. He <laughs> 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 wanted to cut them from his plays, <laughs> at least for a short period. Anyway, no, I mean, the, the coming of Pinter into our lives, as far as the RSC was concerned, was hugely important because it was making less more and really seeing... Now, I remember, and it sounds silly, this, a dish of apples in the homecoming, which came with a rather yellowy, red, rather blushful sort of texture. And Harold said to me, looked at it from the, the stalls, and he said, it's the wrong colour, that, you know. And I looked and I said, oh, yes, it should be green, shouldn't it? Grey-green. He said, that's right. So he went... We had a dish of grey-green apples, whether we played it here or whether we played it in New York. And that was the only actual colour, specific colour, that you could call out and say, that is the colour um, of the whole lot. Now, that less is more. I mean, it sounds very corny, but it's no different to getting the right colour on a word or on a speech or on a scene. Specifics in the theatre really matter. Mm. What do you think are the biggest changes you've seen um, over the 50-odd years, more, 60-odd years that you've been a director? I think it's, it's less star-ridden, which gives us problems because we know that they come because the stars are in it. They come because the play is good as well, but they might not come at all if there isn't a star. Mm. Uh, what is a star? Someone who you absolutely have to see and hear and apprehend. Um, that's got more, that passion, somehow. There's more of a passion for stars? I think so. Yeah. I, th I think 
the good news for us here is, it is, is that there are different stars. There's here, national theatre stars. Yeah, if you put Simon Russell Beale or, or Claire Higgins in a play, that's, that is a star for our audience. It's, well, that's uh, wonderful. That's, um, but I think I... I couldn't it, have better news. I mean, really, I think... Yeah. But I think the problem is in the West End, where there used to be true theatre stars. Now, uh, there true. are very few of them. There are, the, 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 yes, there are wonderful actors who have become television stars and then you're in Clover, but... Um, mm. uh, but d seriously, back in the 50s, you didn't need a star? Oh, yes, it was happy to have one. But, yeah. but you got away with more without. Yeah. And do you think there's been... When you talk about the three types of actors you encountered when you set up the RSC, when you first started working at Stratford... I think, well, we're better off now. Oh, yes, you are. Uh, uh, so, d but you do are. you fear for the future of Shakespeare? Yes, I do, actually. I suppose uh, generations of people from Shakespeare's own time on is, have sat and said it's not like the old days. Mm. And one's very aware of that. On the other hand, there's something so extraordinary about the potency of Shakespeare and let's not mince words. I mean, he is the greatest genius that the West has produced. No, no question in my mind. Um, and, and what's going to happen to that? What, in what respect is it in freeing? In what respect does it inspire us? It's got to be done well, we have to get down to actually brass tacks, don't we? Why, why do I fear for Shakespeare? Because on the whole, I think not sufficient number of people want him, although a fair number do. But look where we're sitting. You can have Shakespeare here. You can have Shakespeare up the road. You can have Shakespeare down the road. We're theatre people around this area. Shakespeare's still box office. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We've, since, since I've been here, eight years, we've never had a seat for anything that we've done by Shakespeare. And, I, you know, and they're going to um, do Much Ado in the West End with uh, David Tennant and Catherine Tate, who are exactly the kind of actor I just mentioned, really good actors who happen to be TV stars, yeah. and they will pack it out. Yeah. So I, th I think there still, is, there still is an audience for it. But I... Do you, do you worry that, as time passes, uh, our relationship to his language will become more and more like our relationship to Chaucer? Well, it must, mustn't it? Yeah. You're not going to... I mean, what an actor would do in 1930... Well, he, you can hear John Gilgood doing his stuff in the yeah. 30s on a disc, yeah. and it doesn't sound like John Gilgood because he changed with, with the society. And quite right too. And by the time you've got a disc that you can play and recognise and say, "There's Johnny," he's making a different sound, and and he's much less sentimental, much less attitudinising somehow. But then you you know then the director has to say, "Excuse me, the only thing you've got is not your costume, not your makeup." It's your head and your heart. And you've got to make the play sound as if you were inventing it at this very moment and you didn't know you were going to say it. And in the meantime, you've also got to say, 
What about the verse? Now, I had a baptism of fire on this subject, actually, because some years ago, we were playing the Edinburgh Festival. And there was a, a, a program of things rather like this going on in, for the public. And people were buying tickets. And I stood in a queue to buy the ticket. And I promise you, I heard this, this girl say to her boyfriend, oh, look, Peter Hall's doing a, a lecture about Shakespeare's verse. I do want to come to that. And the boy said, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> He said, he's, don't be ridiculous, he's, I've forgotten now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's obviously so, so awful that he wiped it. <laughs> how do you see the theatre, how do you see the theatre developing? What do you think the future of the theatre is going to be? The buildings. Just the theatre as an institution. Do you, think, do you think we're OK for the next 50 years? Do you think... No, because I think we still are in a situation where the government doesn't understand what culture is and, and why it needs any hope, why it needs any help. They don't seem to understand it. I mean, to me, it's absolutely crazy that something like this great building, which you've made a, a fantastic success of, and don't say you haven't, because you have... <laughs> Um, but it, it's given that, of course, Whitehall will be saying, well, we can cut you a little bit, but um, you know, watch out next year. We're in a situation where theatres make money and the money is then taken away from them and they're told to economise. Now, that is an economic sense of any kind whatsoever that I've ever heard of. If, if, if the fact that this building is a great success needs to be understood by people, I think. And it, economically, I mean. Mm. And that's the danger. I mean, uh, and you think 30 years ago, there was no royal court, there was no Donmar, there was no Almeida, there was no... National Theatre, there was no RSC. Where would you go? To the West End? Perhaps. So I think that the, the, it's the economic problem more than anything that bothers me because also people don't become the actors that they can be unless they work in the theatre. I mean, you must admit that. And if, if, it's, um, if, they, if they simply train themselves in the theatre, they will not be acceptable to uh, television. It's quite hard to find an actor who is good in the screen, good in movies, good in the TV, and, and good on the stage. Mm. It's quite difficult. Yes, yeah. Um, I think there's the, um, there is the additional issue now of, um, of how expensive it's going to be to go to the best drama schools. I, yeah. I think, uh, I think uh, if you're faced with a 25, 30,000 pound 
loan, the prospect of that, um, by the end of your three years at drama school, you're going to take a deep breath and think that uh, qualifying mm. as an actor is not yeah. necessarily the best way of having any chance of paying your loan back. And I, th I have a horrible feeling that, um, that kids who would once have gone to drama school uh, and, as it were, gambled on a future in the theatre are not going to be able to take that gamble anymore if it also involves a whopping great, a whopping great debt at the end of it. And so we'll have a lot of rich kids being actors. So, uh, and they'll be dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I'm, in, I'm totally in, in agreement with you. Yeah. And your understanding worrying. of the present it situation. Is, it is worrying. Well, I, I think we've got to be more militant and noisier as, as the, the pain starts to bite, the yeah. bite starts to pain. Yeah. More cheerfully, could you, could you give us your three favourite productions from your entire career? Could you pick out three? That I did? Yeah. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's a horrible question, but I think it's the kind of question that people like the questioner to ask. <laughs> Well, I've got an even worse answer. Mm. There's too many of them to say... Uh. <laughs> to convey... <laughs> say only three. Yeah. Um. Well, on the understanding that there are lots... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just randomly, free associate. Well, Anthony and Cleopatra with Tony Hopkins and Judy Dench, mm. Michael Bryant... Um, has to be there. To my intense surprise, because it's been the greatest adventure uh, that, that I've had of, for some years, the use of masks at the Olivier has been um, terribly interesting to me and something that I really want to go on with. But you can't go on unless you've got a space. Mm. And you can do it here, but not really satisfactorily. Mm. It's, the theatre that embraces the actor that one wants. I've done eight productions at Epidaurus in Greece over the years, and they're all, because of the governance of the actual building, they all release things in actors which I've never seen in any other space. You don't even have to say anything about it, you just do it. Mm. And it's extraordinary, that. It yeah. is magical. I, I've just done the one, and it, not in masks. And it wasn't even Greek. It was, <laughs> rare. It was Racine, Phaedra. It is, it's overwhelming, isn't it? It is. It's overwhelming. And no-one knows why it overwhelms, actually. I mean, they say, if you stand in the middle of the stage and just look out and speak in a clear voice, you'll hear, 11,000 people will hear you. Yes, they do, but nobody knows why or how. No. Anyway, this... I mean, theatres need marinating, don't they? They need time to... This is a marinated theatre now. <laughs> it's had extraordinary things done in it. And it's wonderful to come and sit in and know what can go on here mm. and what... and that the stage is as important as the auditorium. Mm. That's... So that's wonderful. I mean, I, I think... Most of my generation have come to some sort of terms with the Olivier, and it's it's a very exciting space. And it's whenever there's been a real dialogue between the space and the creative team doing it, he, all the things that are not 
apparently comfortable in the Olivier situation, dissolve, have gone away. But it's a tricky... I mean, very early on when we moved in here, I did Cherry Orchard. Stupidly, I did it in the Olivier. But I thought, the Olivier can take anything. We were at that <laughs> stage. And, uh, I mean, the cast was ludicrous in its legality. Um, Ralph Richardson was fierce, left in, in the locked-up house at the end. Robert Stevens was... Um, Gaius. Thank you, Gaius. Uh, Susan Fleetwood, Dorothy Tutin. Anyway, it was a fantastic cast, and when we were in the rehearsal room, I really thought we were on to something. We had several magic days when it really was. We took it up onto the Olivier stage, did some dress rehearsals, did some previews, and we'd lost it. And I, to this day, don't know why or how we lost it, but we'd lost it. The critics said we'd lost it. Um, and Ralph Richardson said to me, we've lost it, cocky. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, these things happen. Um, and I've, I've had some good experiences in all three spaces. Mm. But the one that I like the best is this. Mm. So, very good cue to ask whether there are any questions. What about when you did Amadeus? What about when I did Amadeus? Yes, and how did you go about doing... Well, Peter Schaffer, who wrote it, mm. had a very close relationship with the, with the NT for many, many years, way, way back. Um, so the arrival of his script didn't exactly surprise us. Um, there was then the most colossal row, which you'll see um, in one of the books, I think the Arnold Wesker book, uh, about the wonders of his Shylock play. Um, so the John Dexter, who was the extraordinary director, a great director, was supposed to do the play. And he and Peter Schaffer proceeded to spend the summer having the most colossal rows about the percentage, percentage and who, how much the director got. Because we are, <laughs> as you will know only too well as I do too, directors don't get um, percentages like they do in movies. And they don't get. They, they do in the commercial theatre. They don't hear. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, by September, they'd fallen out forever. So, to my intense joy, Peter Schaffer said to me, "You'll have to do it." Uh, <laughs> the idea of "you'll have to" of something that's quite as exciting as that was, anyway, speaks for itself. Um, Paul Schofield played. Salieri, Felicity Kendall was the lady. Sir Toby Belch Sir was Toby Mozart. Belch. Yeah. Sir Toby Belch was Mozart, quite right. It was um, a tough one, very hard. And in fact, we left this country and went to America with it, with an entirely new second act, because the first act, although it had some nice shivery moments, didn't finally add up, we thought. 
However, it's, it um, saved the day here. Well, I can remember night after night paying to stand at the back of the circle for Amadeus. I, can't, I, I saw it, oh, I can't remember how many times. Oh, this Absolute, is good. Yeah. Do carry on. Sorry? It was Simon Callow who was Mozart. Sorry? It was Simon Callow who was Mozart, and indeed he is playing Sir Toby Belch. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's, uh, so it was a little bit of an in-joke. I'm very sorry. So, <laughs> uh, any more questions? Yes. Is there any difference between directing an opera and directing a play? Is there any difference between directing an opera and directing a play? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the opera singer will do exactly what you tell him. <laughs> He, if you say to him, uh, could you, I know, you could jump up on that table and you could sing the aria from, yeah. So he, he jumps up, sings it, comes over and says, how, how did you say, I'm sorry, that was a terrible idea. I'm so, <laughs> so sorry. And he says, didn't I do it well? <laughs> I mean, the average opera singer, I don't, I, I count perhaps the, the, the large, large stars, but the average opera singer will do absolutely anything that you suggest. And it's both wonderful and dreadful. <laughs> the theatre actor says, so, uh, I, I can't, can't do this yet. I've got to learn it. <laughs> or worse still, um, it needs a rewrite. <laughs> or even worse, why? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think, in a way, um, actors have been encouraged to be talkative. I mean, I love it. I really do love it when they all argue. Because out of that argument comes something. But um, I think there, I mean, 50 years ago, it would only be the star who would say anything, I would imagine. Certainly, they were pretty silent when I came into the, in the 50s. I mean, ladies had handbags. Ladies wore hats. And if they were going to roll on the floor, they had to be given ample notice. <laughs> so that's the difference. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Uh, I, I'm going to repeat the question just so that everybody can, can hear. Uh, does Peter think that it's been detrimental to the profession that so many repertory companies have disappeared? Disaster. I mean, it is. It's terrible. It's happening now, and it's already happening. Um, what is the purpose of it? Just to make sure that the theatre is in the same kind of political colour as everybody else. I mean, the money can't be that important because it's so small. But if you take it away, which the Arts Council are doing, have done, then the thing can't go on. It's, it's really very sad because I, I don't think I'm right, wrong in, wrong, right? I don't think I'm wrong in saying that just at the time when we realized we'd been bankrupted practically, um, the regional theater was in a particularly lively state. Mm, it's true. And I mean, if you're going to have a national theatre, if you're going to have an RSC, if you're going to have a royal court, you need the regions to feed those stages with talent. So I think it's a disaster. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, don't, I don't know... I mean, they don't apparently hear 
you know, because those people who, who market beans are going to have to be cut, everybody's going to have to be cut, never mind about the beans. Mm. Yes? Is there a Shakespeare play you've not directed and would still like to do? Yes, I haven't done Titus Andronicus. Uh, I haven't done The Merry Wives of Windsor. I haven't done Pericles. And do you want to do any of those? Uh, not Merry Wives of Windsor. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to, but I mean, I, I, I'm not in the... Um, I've, yeah, I've done, I think, 31 or two of them, anyway. Some of them more than once. <laughs> yes. Oh, goodness. <laughs> what do you think, think of I, my I habit? Think, I think I met you um, immediately after your very interesting production and thanked you and praised it. I think that's absolutely right, yes. Well, there you are. There. I, th I, think, I think that's... Uh, that that will pass, we'll pass swiftly on. Um, <laughs> thank you. Can I just just say that 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 uh, have have you deliberately brought out the melancholic and poignant side of Twelfth Night, yes. despite the fact that the comedy comes out very unforced and natural? Yes, but I think um, I don't think Feste is that funny. I don't think he's wry, he's dry, he's musical. He's a tramp, actually, and I mean. It, we don't know where he's been. He's been away for weeks. We don't know whether she'll take him back, Olivia or not. But it is planted that he's a fool that the Lady Olivia's father took much delight in. And I don't think you'd say that if, if he wasn't. Mm. I mean, there was some... There's a, there's a whole thing about the, the fool, anyway. Most of the fools... Uh, who earned their living either on the street or in a bar or in a company of actors if they were doing plays. But they were <coughs> drinkers, livers, clingers, clingers on to some kind of life. And I think um, most of them, by record show, were priests that didn't, hadn't made it, hadn't made the last exams or the last... So although they could speak Latin and Greek and were frightfully interested in the Old Testament and could sing popular songs for money, they weren't any good uh, as God's lieutenant. But, I mean, that's why... That's why it is what it is. If you study the play, there are lots of references to being... And we, th we did think of, of making Feste look more like a down-at-heeled priest. But that seemed to be saying it too loudly, too mm -hmm. harshly, um, too smugly. There's another interesting little thing. Am I right about this? That uh, it was just before Twelfth Night that the company lost, or uh, Will Kemp lost. walked out of the company yes. in, in a huge half. They lost their big star. Their big 
fool star and a new fool arrived in the shape of Robert Armin, who was much more melancholic. And, yes. that, and that the fools that Shakespeare wrote after Armin came into the com company were very different from very the Very different, fools. very introspective and not very funny, any yeah. of them. No. So it was a, a, we're hiring this new fool. He's not very funny. Uh, so uh, <laughs> could you write exactly. not funny parts for him? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But then you'd be in trouble because he'd want funny parts, yeah. so he could not be not funny. <laughs> yes. No. I hate concept theatre, and I think people, directors who walk into a theatre rehearsal room on the first day and say, here's your design, and this is your dress, uh, and, that, and now th this is the set. Do as I say. I've done it already. I've staged it already. I've got my concept. Um, the only way you find the concept of a real masterpiece is to go on a journey of living with it and examining it and trying to understand it, you and the actors. And by the end, you'll have a concept. But you won't, be, you won't want to say, it's my concept, because it's not your concept. It's our concept. I think we've got time for one more question. very difficult to answer the question because that's what I hope I do. Um, I don't really want to do a play like a play that I've done before. I don't really want to. I mean, I'm like it or lump it. I'm perfectly aware that this Twelfth Night, which we're sitting in, um, is totally different to the Twelfth Nights I've done in the past. And not because I said I must be different because I went on the journey and did the play with the actors. And it's not the same thing as you know, doing a play in a hurry. Um, you can find it as a group if you really want to as a group. And that's worth everything. Also, I don't remember what I've done, honestly. <laughs> but I, I try not to. I mean, that seems to me not the point. I mean, and actors would very get, they'd get very iffy if you, they said, well, we saw this last month. You're doing it again, are you? And you say, yes, <laughs> using my same ideas. Mm. I think, um, I think there have been so many ideas that have emerged from Peter um, over the last 60-odd years, nearly 60 years. We've all been the beneficiaries. Um, it needs to be said every time Peter's in the vicinity, that there has been no more influential or beneficial figure in the British theatre uh, this last half century. I and all my contemporaries owe our lives in the theatre and our jobs to him, and I'm very, very delighted and honoured to have been able to talk to him. Thank you very much.